Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week, we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are in a study of the Old Testament book of Daniel, and this is the eighth lesson in this series, and so far we are still in the second chapter of Daniel. Class teacher Doug Brady is carefully opening the scriptures and studying the ancient Hebrew and Aramaic writings and bringing us into the full understanding of what God has left for us. Today we are looking at the stone. You will want to have your Bible open to the second chapter of Daniel. Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom with the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We're studying the book of Daniel. So open your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Daniel. We're going to talk about a stone today. Not just any kind of stone, a special stone. You know, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed this dream, and he thought it was very important and very concerning to him. But there's a number of scholars who would tell you, listen, you need to understand, dreams come from a man or a woman's subconscious. This dream is nothing more than the subconscious creations of this man named Nebuchadnezzar. And you put all this weight in it, Brady, and you are seriously mistaken. This is just a subconscious ramblings of a petulant leader who believes that he has some important place in history. Well, anybody who takes that position doesn't read the Bible. Or else they're going to say the Bible is a liar. One of the two, they only have that choice because in Daniel 2.29, look what it says. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. Now, if he stopped there, uh, maybe these critics would have a point. But he says, he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. You notice that he is capitalized because it's saying God revealed to you Nebuchadnezzar. So that's either a lie or it's the truth. And if it's the truth, God revealed this. One of the things we're going to talk about today, what's the most important part of this dream? The stone. The stone is the most important part. And we're going to major on the stone today. But before we go any farther, let's pray. Father, as we come today to open this book, you know the excitement in my heart. And I pray that you'll place that same excitement in everybody else's heart to understand what it is you're telling us and how important it is to us and how much we can learn from it and how much it will help us if we understand it to deal with with higher biblical critics. I pray all these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for me and everyone here, even everyone in the world. Amen. All right. Now, this dream, let's review it very quickly. It's an awesome statue. 
and it's looking at us. And the first part up here, the head is gold, and that's Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Uh, the second is the chest and arms of silver. That's the uh, Medo-Persian Empire with Cyrus. The third is the loins and the abdomen of bronze. That's the third kingdom, which is Greece and Alexander the Great. Then the uh, loins and legs of iron, which is the fourth kingdom, which is Rome, uh, led by the Caesars. Now, we need to remember, and hopefully we got a chance to understand, where are we on this statue? Where? Yes, we are. We're at the ankles. We're at the ankles. There's no feet and toes yet, but the legs are through. We're at the ankles, in a manner of speaking. And I wanted you to see that. Now, there's something else that I, it's very difficult to understand, especially for me, because I, I can get to the answer in Hebrew, but Aramaic is, a, is not as strong in my uh, studies. But I have search books, I have looked, and I want you to look at verse 43 of chapter 2, and something it says there at the end where it's talking about the feet. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they. Now, the first thing we've got to understand is the they. Who is the they? What is the antecedent of that pronoun? There are two possibilities. Number one, everything on the statue preceding this. Or number two, the ten toes. The feet and ten toes. I, as I read it, and since it's talking about these toes in verse 42, you, to find the antecedent of a pronoun, you should look back to the immediate portions of the narrative to see what would be, and I believe it's the toes, the, ten, the two feet and the ten toes. And just like in 42, it says, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and clay, in, in that what you saw, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. In the seed of men. What in the world does that mean? If you look up this word, it has three meanings. Number one, it can be seed like you plant in your garden. Number two, it can mean seed as in the, your lineal descendants. If you look, who knows where the very first time of the prediction of the Messiah to save the world is made in the Scripture. Genesis where? 3.15, that's right. So let's look at Genesis 3.15 for just a second. And I want you to see where, how it uses this same word only in Hebrew. And I will put enmity, that is, I will make you enemies. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. That is, between Satan and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. And he, that is, her seed, will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now you look at that. I've got to explain this passage to you so you can understand this use of the word seed. What is it saying here? Her seed will bruise you, Satan, on the head. 
Head injury is a killing injury. Heel injury is a painful injury, but not a, kill, a healing, not a killing injury, except maybe to Achilles. But since he's mythical, doesn't count. Now, Hebrew scholars, the, 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 the uh, priests and, and the Pharisees, as they would study this passage, they would have great consternation because they understood the secondary meaning of this word seed. Women do not have seed. Only men have seed. Therefore, this is a biologically incorrect statement. It says her seed. How can a woman have conception without a man? That's impossible. Oh, unless you're talking about one particular man. By the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the angel of the Lord. If you're talking about him, he didn't have a human seed. Uh, there wasn't a, fa a biological father for him. And that's what this is talking about, promising that one. Now, the scary thing about this verse, it's in parallels. What's in parallel with her seed? What? Satan's seed. Wait a second. Was it, when you have a parallel in Hebrew, those parallels are equal. And it's saying what? It's saying that his seed, I mean her seed, singular, and a person, a real person. His seed, singular, a real person. We begin to get the gravity of this passage from the very start. Now, so in effect, this passage is combining uh, meanings two and three of this word seed. Not like a seed you plant in the garden. Descendants and the biological form that has the ability to create descendants. Let me make it clear to you. Look at how this word is used in Genesis chapter 38, I believe it is, verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring, he's having to follow Jewish law and go into his brother's wife because his brother had died to raise up offspring to her. And he doesn't like that because the child won't be his. I mean, if you think about it, guys, you want to go in and have sexual relations with your brother's wife and the child is not going to be yours. I don't know. That's how Onan thought, knew the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Now, I'm hoping I don't have to explain to you what happened in that scenario. But you begin to see and understand this word seed. So what could it possibly be saying? Well, what I tried to do is to come up maybe with some scenarios of how this could be possible. What if someone were to release a horrible virus on the world at the time of the feat, and it was killing people, and they also had a plan to have some kind of inoculation supposedly to stop the virus and its spread, and this inoculation contained matter that would cause people's DNA to be changed because it changes their RNA. And then I thought, that's crazy. That could never happen. So I gave up on coming up with kind of ex uh, ways to explain what could possibly happen. And we're going to move on and not consider that anymore. 
But then I want you to see this, and here's where I really want your focus today. In this dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a rock which destroyed this magnificent statue he admired so much. Now I want you to think about this. To Nebuchadnezzar, the big thing was the statue. That was what was, had so much admiration. That's what he's going to try and recreate in chapter 3. Rock? I mean, rock's not more valuable than a uh, gold or silver or even bronze or iron. Unless it's the right kind of rock. And so, we're going to try... I, I approach this from the point of view of an investigation whether I as a lawyer am investigating a case or as a detective would investigate a crime or as an accident adjuster would, uh, uh, would uh, uh, investigate an accident or uh, uh, an accident recreator would do that or as an archaeologist would, would investigate something looking for clues. And we're going to start with chapter 2, verse 34. This is the part where in the dream, he's explaining the dream telling or, or narrating, relating the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed all in the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so there was not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now understand, what happened was this stone strikes the feet and it causes the statue to crumble. But it doesn't just hit it once. As the statue crumbles, it then pulverizes it and turns it into just a powder. You ever had iron filings and you could just blow them and they blow out of your hand? You know, you don't think that iron necessarily is something you can blow. But if it's ground up fine enough, you can. And that's what it says happens here. It pulverizes them. So what in the world is it saying? Well, first of all, what do we know about this stone? It was cut out. Cut out. Now, that's not an accidental event, is it? That's an intentional event. It was cut out. Who cut out this stone? Well, I put that answer in there, and I want you to know I've gone up to a higher level. This is not a trick question. That's a trick answer. And so we're going farther to try and understand. But first of all, from what is this stone cut out? It's cut out of a mountain because it begets a mountain or becomes a mountain. Who and what is this mountain? I want you to see. The dream doesn't say who the mountain that it was cut out from was, but we are told in the grammar. This is why I love this concept of verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Everything has value and everything has meaning. If you look at the grammar of this verb, you will find that it's ithpael, it means to be cut out, its stem, that's its stem, Ethpile, its mood is perfect, but the Ethpile stem in Aramaic, the Heathpile stem in Hebrew is reflexive. Well, what do we mean by that? It means not that the, the, that the subject's doing the action on the direct object or that an indirect object is doing action on the subject. It means the subject is doing the action on the subject. 
So who cut it out? The stone did. The stone cut itself out. Do you see that? Do you see the value of that? Who cut out the stone? Jesus Christ, because he is the stone. You see, the creator made this himself. He's creating this kingdom. Do you begin to see the import of this? This kingdom is made by whom? Jesus. Did he need any help from anybody else? Is he going to do it all by himself? Yes. Is the answer to all of those questions. He doesn't need any help. Now, to make it even stronger, what does he say? Without hands. The stone is cut out without hands. Now, I hear some commentators say he was cut out without human hands. That's not what it says. It says it's cut out without hands. Because this is an act of God. You don't even see any hands involved. All it is, it's just cut out. You don't see how it's being cut out in this vision. And it just is there. And so what is happening here is it is made certain that this is an act of God. If you look in Mark 14, 58, Jesus says that where he says, I'll destroy this temple made with hands. And in three days, I'll build another one made without hands. Well, was it in 70 AD destroyed with hands? Yep, the Romans did it. But did Jesus, the temple he was talking about, his body in three days, did he rebuild it? Yes, he did. If you were to look in Colossians 2, 8 and 12, it talks uh, about a circumcision made without hands. And it's the same concept. It's a divine action and here credited to Christ. So it struck the statute on the feet, clearly the most unstable and the weakest part of this statue. And it crushed them. That is, first, it crushed the feet of the statue. Now, what happens when feet are crushed? Well, the whole statue topples. And then the rock crushed and pulverized the entire statue, and it pulverized it to the extent it was like powder, and it just had to be blown away. So, after that, the stone grows into a mountain, and then the mountain continues growing until it fills the whole earth. But as you read this, one of the things you have to see, this is not talking about a long-term event. This is talking about an instantaneous event, a quick-happening event. This is not something that's slow. And that's going to be very important for us to see in just a minute. Both the demolition of the statute and the expansion of the stone were quickly done. This is not the start of the church or Christianity. Uh, someone argue that the mountain out of which this stone was cut was Israel. But no, it's the Godhead. Well, is God or Jesus ever referred to as a stone in the Old Testament as opposed to Israel? Well, look in Genesis 49:24. But his his bow his bow remains firm his arms are agile for the hands of the mighty one of Jacob he's referring to from there is the shepherd the stone of Israel who is the shepherd of Israel Jesus Christ the stone of Israel do you see that he's the stone now there are some commentators who want to say, well, this stone does refer to a kingdom, but it's not a literal kingdom. Come on. It's a spiritual kingdom. 
Does anybody want to make a guess as to where that first started? Julie, where would you think out of the whole place of the world would something like that come from? Yeah, but from where? I'm talking about geographical location. How about Alexandria, Egypt? Ah, a lot of stuff comes out of Alexandria, Egypt, which is inspired by someone other than the Holy Spirit, shall we say. Uh, I don't find that in the Bible. In Chinese things, I just try to distance myself from these days. Uh, I'm not real happy with China. And, well, I don't know. I've got 100 million brothers and sisters over there. But uh, I want you to see what Jesus says in John 18.36. This is what they quote when they say it's not a literal kingdom. John 18.36 said, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, when's he saying that? Who's he saying that to? He's in his trial and he's saying it to Pilate. Pilate says, are you a king? Did Jesus come as a king that time? No, he did not. He came as a suffering servant. He came as the Lamb of God, as the sacrifice for our sins, not as a king. Will that change? There's time coming when he does come as a king, as a lion of the tribe of Judah. But I want you to see, now we've got to go back to the dream. Are the other kingdoms literal? Well, then this one's not going to be a spiritual kingdom. It's going to be a literal kingdom also. Now they say, did Christ teach his disciples to pray for the kingdom? My kingdom come. It wasn't going to come his first time. Do we want to pray for the kingdom to come? In a manner of speaking, because we know what's going to happen before the kingdom comes. He's coming for us. And that's what's important to see. Now, let's look at the interpretation of the stone to complete our investigation. It says, in, those day, in the days of those kings. Now, that tells you who the they were. Remember, we were considering the antecedent of that pronoun they? Well, it tells you in 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will never be left for another people. And it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms but it, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw a stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it will crush the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, in his interpretation, Daniel adds some more facts for us for this investigation. The stone represents a kingdom established by God. There can be no question of that. It says it clearly in the scripture. This kingdom, unlike those that preceded it, will never be destroyed. You see that in the passage. It will not. Each of the other kingdoms will come to an end. This kingdom will have no end. Nor will it be controlled or supplanted by anyone else. It will destroy and bring an end to all the kingdoms who are preceding it. Now, who are those kings referred to in verse 44? Now, here again, progressive scholars want to say it's everybody in the statue. 
but no, it's not. It's referring specifically to the feet and toes. That time has not yet come. Now, it's very important to see that. Why? Because the kingdom can't have come if the feet and toes haven't come yet. The kingdom, the stone comes after the toes and the feet. And that's important to understanding, as we will see, and I'm going to try and make it clear. Yes, please do. Although, you know, who was that guy who wrote the, the path, footsteps of the Messiah? Jewish guy. Say it again, Julie. Fruit and Mom. I was in a, uh, a, a lecture series in Fruit and Bomb, who is, I mean, unbelievable. He was going over that, and I asked him, isn't it true that the stone kingdom ends after a thousand years? He says, no. If you look carefully, he turns that kingdom over to his father, and the kingdom continues. And really, whether it's Jesus or the father, they're the same thing. And from his way of seeing things from the divine perspective, it lasts forever. Good question. I asked that exact question to ours of fruit and bomb. Memories. Now, what or who is that stone is none other than Jesus Christ and his kingdom to come. Do you remember when Jesus was on the earth, he preached the gospel of the kingdom? Now, I want you to understand this because this is important. If the Jewish people had accepted their Messiah this dream would have been false. Because if they had accepted the Messiah, Jesus would have been killed, rose from the dead, and established his kingdom. But they rejected him. And God knew that. So the dream was correct all along because God has foreknowledge of exactly what every human being is going to do. And that's how it happened. And so you begin to see you know, we think sometimes it's difficult to play three-layer chess. You imagine the layers God plays? All the people in the world, he knows exactly what they're going to do. His plan takes into consideration all of that. And now, I want you to see that there are also some scholars that say, you know, look at the statue first. There's, there's gold and there's silver Iron, yes, yeah, down at the bottom, but iron is strong. Look what we've done with iron, and look at our iron age now. And you're comparing Jesus to a stone? That doesn't really seem proper to me. I mean, a stone is, doesn't have that much value. Well, that depends on whose eyes you're looking at it from. Because let me tell you, Jesus is constantly referred to as a stone. And I'm going to go through and tell you all the different stones that he's compared to so that you can see. Number one, he's referred to as the stone that was smitten because he's going to be killed. You remember, uh, the, he's going to bruise you on the heel. In Exodus 17, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the people. He strikes this rock, and it splits in two, and water comes out. That's Jesus. 
Well, now, how do you know that's Jesus? I mean, you say that, and it's a pretty picture, but you don't know that for sure. Oh, yes, I do. And let me tell you the reason why. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers are all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Obviously talking about the Jewish people. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they ate the same spiritual food. What? Manna. And drank the same spiritual drink. What? And they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. No question in my mind. Not only was he a rock smitten, he, was, he is a stumbling stone. Jesus is a stumbling stone? Like cause somebody to trip? Yes. Look in Isaiah 8, starting in verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread, and then he, will become, then he shall become a sanctuary. But to the, both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem because of their sin, Isaiah is saying. Look what it says in Romans. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not by faith, but, they were, but, as through, but as though it were by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And again, Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they are appointed. Now you notice it mentions another kind of stone in that passage in First Peter. A cornerstone. You see in Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, chief cornerstone, what does that mean? Well, how many corners are there usually in a building? Four usually, yes. Unless maybe it's a dodecagon or something. But let's say uh, four in a normal building. But you've got to lay one first, right? All the other cornerstones come from that cornerstone. That's the chief cornerstone. And that's what it says it is. The chief cornerstone in Isaiah 28, it says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation, firmly placed, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. And then in Matthew, Jesus is saying, that is, I am the cornerstone. Maybe in the trial of Peter and John, it shows it even more clearly, where it says, where they're questioning Peter, and he responds, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by his name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, and which became the chief cornerstone. Chief cornerstone of what? The church. In 1 Peter, it says the same thing. Now, one other passage I found that's interesting that I think we might be able to say hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's in Zechariah 3. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, and Joshua was the high priest at the time, on one stone are seven eyes. That's the seven eyes of the Holy Spirit. 
Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. What land is he talking about? Israel. What is the one day when he will remove the sin from Israel? The day, not the day of the Lord, the day when he comes back. That's when they will all turn to him and the remnant will repent and turn to him and this is our Messiah whom we killed. And it will be a glorious day for Israel. Israel's not having too many glorious days right now. And it's a shame that the nation that God created, and I'm talking about the United States of America, has turned our back on her. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. Who funded the missiles that Hamas is shooting? You did. They took your tax dollars and paid them. Mine too. Yes, you're right. <laughs> and I, I hate it, but we're going to go on. It's clear that any fair scholar interpreter would conclude that this stone is Christ and his kingdom. So what does it tell us, this stone? Is it instructive to us about the kingdom that the Lord Jesus will one day establish? Yes, I'm going to tell you uh, uh, six or five different things about this kingdom that it, this stone tells us. Number one, this kingdom is a supernatural kingdom. Uh, the kingdom will not be brought in by humans, but by God. Man makes bricks, God makes stones. And the rock is strong, durable, and firm. Number two, it'll be a sudden kingdom. This won't happen over a long period of time. It doesn't grow or develop. It just happens. It happens immediately. The other kingdoms were built on the ruins of each other. Not this one. The blow from the stone will be sudden and decisive. Not only that, it's a severe kingdom. You see, most of us picture Jesus as the lamb. But notice... When he comes back, it uses these words, it struck, it crushed them. They became like chaff. The wind carried them away, left not a trace. The impact of this stone will be overwhelming. And he comes back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Ravenous and unrelenting. It's not the Jesus you're used to. It's not the Jesus who brought us grace. It then will be the Jesus who brings judgment. Judgment. It will also be, fourthly, a sovereign kingdom. It will fill the whole earth. He will be absolute ruler. Is a dictatorship a good form of government? Answer, no, unless the dictator is Jesus Christ. Then it's the absolute best kind of government you could ever have. He will be a benevolent despot. And he will be the one we will want to make all the decisions because you know he's always just. You don't ever have to worry about anybody trying to influence the ruler uh, for their own benefit. That doesn't happen. He will also be uh, a successful kingdom. It endures forever. The kingdom will be unconquerable. Satan will have one last try, but he will fail, and it will be without successor. Now, what about the effect of this dream and particularly the description of the stone on biblical interpretation. Biblical interpretation. I think it's very, very important. We talk about the kingdom 
And most of us know it as the Millennial Kingdom. And there are three main viewpoints of this Millennial Kingdom, which the stone represents. There's the amillennial view, there's the post-millennial view, and there's the pre-millennial view. Now, you know, biblical scholars, like doctors and lawyers, they have to create terms that you can't understand, so you have to listen to them to explain them. And uh, that's what we do. And so let's look at these quickly and try and get a good grasp. Amillennialists believes that there is no millennial kingdom. That's the alpha privative coming. No millennial kingdom coming. Why? Because it was established by Jesus when he came the first time. This kingdom is not a literal kingdom, so to speak. It's a spiritual kingdom, and it's in the hearts of his believers. That's why Jesus said, you know, if, I, if it was my kingdom, we'd be fighting right now. No, it's just that the time for fighting is not right now. Uh, at the time when Jesus had to die, the fighting time will come. But what he means is that really the church is the kingdom. The church, is, the church is not the kingdom. The church is not Israel. Those two things are not the same. If you believe the church is Israel or that the church has taken over all of the prerequisites of Israel and the promises of Israel, you are wrong. That's not biblical. I don't have time to go into it today. That would be a whole series of lessons. But the amillennialist is wrong. This kingdom doesn't just exist in the hearts of believers. It's a real, literal kingdom, and we will rule and reign in it besides our husband, Jesus. Number two, there are post-millennialists who believe that the kingdom is real, and it's intended to be God's, and they, the church, are intended to be God's tool or implement to establish and bring in the millennial kingdom. That's what they think. They claim that Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom and is prepared, and that, that is to prepare yourself for the kingdom to come. You are going to be the means for bringing it in. Who believes that? The merchant church believes that. But give me one guy, one guy who has misled more people on that, in my opinion, than anybody. Rick Warren. Now, wait a second. Didn't our church teach his book once? I did. I was fooled by that guy. He hadn't made the statements yet then that the church is going to be used to bring in the, the kingdom. But that's what he firmly believes. And he preaches it to stadiums full. And he says, if you'll commit, we'll do this. And he says, we need to put together a spiritual army that will eradicate the disease in infants. It'll eradicate infant uh, or, or, or child hunger. It'll eradicate uh, illiteracy and several other things. That, is that what the church is supposed to be doing? Let me just tell you, Jesus, although he taught his disciples to pray for the kingdom, because it was the next major event until Israel rejected the Messiah. There are many today who try to plan for and take actions they believe will help establish the kingdom. But according to Daniel chapter 2, humans will have no impact whatsoever. That's why he says, this is a stone cut out without hands. Humans are not involved. Well, that leads us to the third. That's the premillennial view. What about that? This view holds that the kingdom will come after the final seven years of the Jewish dispensation. And that prior to that coming, the church will be removed from the earth. 
I want you to think about that. If the church is removed from the earth before the kingdom comes, what can the church do to bring it in? Absolutely nothing. They're not involved in it. Now, the church will come back with Jesus when the kingdom's established. Does this prophecy support a premillennial view? You see, the stone will become a mountain that's going to fill the whole earth suddenly, not gradually. When Christ came the first time, it was during the time of the Roman Empire. That is, the legs of, and loins of iron. But he didn't destroy it, did he? Was this empire destroyed by him, the Roman Empire? No. It continued on way after Christ. The Roman Empire was not divided into ten kings and kingdoms, was it, at the time of Jesus? Well, it doesn't fit, then, if you're going to say that there's a post-millennial view. But the premillennial view supports both of those positions. Although Christ is now the cornerstone of the church and a stone of stumbling for non-believers, he has not yet become the stone that smites. Jesus hasn't smitten yet. He will. Some of us wish he would hurry up and do that. But he has his plan in his time, and he's not going to do it before, and he will do it exactly the right time. So this stone of Daniel chapter 2 will smite and destroy all the nations, but the church and Christ before her did not attempt any such thing of smiting. The church is not a kingdom, nor any manner of political realm. The church is the bride of Christ, not a kingdom. Now, how many times do you hear pastors say, oh, we need to pray for the kingdom of God, meaning the church? They're misinformed. Church is not the kingdom of God. They're not working for the kingdom of God. They're working for the church. And we'll talk about that in a second. Yes? Does that mean the post-millennial would be taking the Lord's name in vain? Or is that evil in God's name? What is, maybe it's better put this way. They will be doing things that God doesn't want them to do. They will have goals that God doesn't necessarily want them to have. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. And it will answer your question even more. And if I don't completely answer it, yell at me again. Because we need to look at this. This is important to understand. There is a fourth view that some people have. They are called pan-millennialists. pan Millennials. What do they mean? They believe, well, what's the difference? There's no need to pay attention to this. It'll all pan out in the end anyway. But that's a terrible mistake. I hear that about the rest. It's a terrible mistake. Why is that such a bad mistake? For the church, for if the church believes what will happen will happen, she loses her evangelistic fervor and a chilling effect comes over our hearts. There is a threefold message, a, a mission to the church, and we need to understand it. God has, and that's the problem with those who are post-millennials. They don't understand the threefold mission of the church. What is the church to be doing? Number one, fulfill the Great Commission. That is first and foremost in the church's responsibility. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. You say, well, okay, Jesus is going to do No, he says, as the Father sent me, so send I you, seeking to save those who are lost. Now, you wait for them to come to you? That's not what seek means, does it? If you look to the second one, I want you to see it. It says to edify the saints. 
That's the second goal of the church, to edify this. What does that mean? To build up and equip the saints. Build them up and equip them for what purpose? To fulfill the Great Commission. That's number two. Number three, to glorify God. Why does God want the church to glorify Him? Because glorifying God makes Him attractive to others to enable us to fulfill the Great Commission. He doesn't want anyone to perish, it says in Peter. Now they will, because that's their choice. But he doesn't want it. That's why his son died for the entire world. Not just for a few, for the whole world. So I want you to see this. If the church starts to work to bring in the kingdom, they destroy the purpose of God. Look, you know, when I was in junior high, my mother brought me home a book. And she said, we're going to study this book and look at it. You're going to love this book. It was called The Late Great Planet Earth, written by a guy named Hal Lindsey. And I learned my first eschatology from The Late Great Planet Earth. Now it's grown and changed and, and improved. Uh, my wife was trained by your mother. Didn't your mother read Late Great Planet Earth to y'all? You shouldn't have said when because now they see how much... I robbed the cradle. But the fact is, here's what Hal Lindsey has to say. That if the church began to see herself as the establisher of God's kingdom, quote, the last days of the church on earth may be largely wasted, seeking to accomplish a task that only the Lord himself can and will do directly. Do we want that? And it's important to see that it's very simple to become a part of the church, the bride of Christ, to go in the rapture. All it takes is the right uh, response to an understanding and an invitation. Uh, understanding that God loves you, but that you're a sinner and your sin has separated you from God. And because of that, you're going to be eternally separated from God unless something happens. But Jesus intervened. He came down here. He died for your sins. And all you have to do is receiving by faith. For by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one should boast. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in to him and fellowship with him. But he only knocks. You have to open the door. Now, I want something else I want you to think about about this stone. You see, it's easy for us to become upset about what's happening in the world around us. The lying, the skullduggery, the threats of war, what's happening over in the Middle East, acts of terror, the prosperity and success of evil leaders. You would think, well, God, evil leaders should not be prosperous. They shouldn't have success. They're going to. The more they have it, the closer we know they're to the end. But we know that God and not world leaders are in control of the affairs of mankind. That's what this dream tells us. He decides the outcome of history, and his kingdom is unassailable, and we are secure in him. We need to understand that security. It doesn't matter what Satan's doing in this world. We have him, or he has us, in his hand, and no one can take us out. And if he wants to take us home, let him take us home. So what? We're better off going home. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We need to understand that. 
But while we're here, there's one more concept of the rock we need to look at before we finish today. One more concept. There's another kind of rock which the Lord became for us, and that's the rock of refuge. Look how uh, David describes it in Psalm 94. But Yahweh, the Lord, has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge, the place where I can go and hide, the place where I can seek safety and comfort. That's what a rock of refuge is. Samuel wrote the same thing when speaking about David. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So understand, he said, this is the song that David sang to the Lord, this psalm that he wrote. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. And we need to see that. And there's a lot of people who misunderstand that and they want to say, no, we're to be about kingdom work. You've got it. All right. Any other questions? Julie. And it is interesting that as the church has kind of progressed into this, that we're not evangelists. We depend on our pastor to be the evangelist. You, you chill on your own evangelistic fervor. All right. Let's play. Father, we thank you for the time that we could come together. We thank you for giving Nebuchadnezzar this magnificent dream and then preserving it for us in this book so that we could see it. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for doing that. Now, Father, help us to understand the church does not have that long. You know there are many people who, leave, who believe we're living on borrowed time. I pray that your coming is soon, but that you won't find us being misled or lazy. Help us not to be the servants who bury the talent. But instead, Father, those who are working to reproduce until the time you call us back. And may that time be soon, Father. Our world is getting so wicked and so evil and so horrible. We want to stick our heads in the sand sometimes, Father, but we can't do that. Help us to be faithful and pray to hold back the evil horde from what's coming pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.